Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 23 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. I think if you if you define yourself too narrowly as well, like I said it earlier, it's it's okay when it's when things are going well. When they don't go so well, if you've got this narrow definition of yourself, what happens is you hear people say things like, well, I failed, I failed at a task, so I failed at that, and therefore I am a failure. You know, I, I think that is the language of self-esteem. And it's really like the second part isn't necessary, right? That you, you just, you failed. Doesn't doesn't prove anything about you as a person. It's just, you, you you failed at something. You know, next time you can work on whatever it is you failed at and you can do it better. But when people say, you know, oh, I don't know, I, I, my relationship ended, therefore I, I must be unlovable. It, it's that kind of narrow definition. And, and it's, it's rarely, I, I can't think of a, a situation in which that's helpful to, to define yourself on the basis of things that happen. And people are much more than the sum of their behaviours and experiences. P-Supers, I'm delighted to be back to share part two of my chat with Dr. Richard Bennett and Dr. Joe Oliver. Both are clinical psychologists, both are legends in their field, and they joined me on the show to talk about self-esteem at work. We began by unpacking the concept that's so popular that Bennett Olivers draw upon the evidence to illustrate how self-esteem can be quite a narrow and restrictive concept. We can often say, I've got very high self-esteem, or my self-esteem is very low. And that can limit our behaviour and impact on our whole career, possibly life. The chaps present their alternative perspective of self-acceptance which effectively captures the nuanced and multifaceted experience of being a human. Their approach is set out in their book, The Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Self-Esteem, using acceptance and commitment therapy to move beyond negative self-talk and embrace self-compassion. And in this episode, there's a tremendous treasure trove of insights and a superb and generous takeaway. People Soup is an award-winning podcast where we share evidence-based behavioural science in a way that's practical, accessible and fun to nourish your mind to flourish at work. Let's take a quick scoot over to the news desk. Reviews are in for part one of my conversation with Rich and Joe. Chris Winson, dear friend of the show, said, Just finished listening. Fabulous episode again, Ross. So great to hear your career stories, Rich, Joe, and love the bonding over the doctor. Excellent music choice, Joe. Yours was far too recent for me, Rich. I'm with Ross and stuck in the 80s. And we have another great review from Rachel Lee, who said over on Twitter, Another brilliant episode of People Soup. Loved hearing Richard and Joe's stories, told with such openness. Very inspiring. Fabulous song choices too. Joe's had me sprinting on my run and I enjoyed Richard's awesome wet leg tune by the fire pit. A sincere thank you to everyone who listened, shared and reviewed. Now, those with heightened noticing skills may have noticed the gap between part one and part two being released. I'd like to thank everyone for their patience. Fortunately, I am fully confident that your patience is about to be rewarded. The delay was a function of life. I've been working flat out on a mega exciting project since March, designing and delivering coaching skills masterclasses to senior leaders in a global drinks company. Needless to say, this has involved a hefty dose of contextual behavioural science, which has gone down a storm. It's also involved a lot of European travel. Coupled with that, 
We moved house in May, and we couldn't be happier with our new home near Seville. It's just been a tad busy, and I felt a bit exhausted and, to use a Spanish word, a la deriva, which means adrift. You'd be pleased to hear I'm now growing roots and feeling established, and plans are gently afoot for new guests and topics. And finally, some of you may also be giddy with excitement as I am that I'm recording this from my new custom-made podcast booth. And you can check out a photo of that in the show notes. So, dear listener, that's me. But for now, get a brew on and have a listen to part two of my chat with the wonderful Rich and Joe. In the second part, I want to talk about your book, The Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Self-Esteem. And I want to do it with a a workplace flavor, if we can. So maybe we start with the topic and then come on to the book. I wonder if we could start just by talking about your approach to self-esteem. Talk to me about that, if you will. Um, Who'd like to start? I could start, if you like, just just in terms of, because this goes back to something I said in the last episode about um, my roots in rational emotive behaviour therapy. So Albert Ellis was always a big critic of the concept of self-esteem, and he wrote a book in the early 2000s, The Myth of Self-Esteem. Self-esteem as a concept has sort of been around since the late 1960s, a guy called Nathaniel Brandon wrote a book about self-esteem and, the, and the, it just really caught on as a phrase. And I think I think Joe would agree that we struggle with it as a concept just because what if you take it apart, you've, you've got, you know, the self, everything about oneself that can be thought of or rated, this sort of global idea of everything about me, and then the verb uh, to estimate. So what self-esteem is kind of saying is it's like an estimation of the self. So some kind of one global overall judgment about who somebody is, like a, a measurement. And people tend to talk about it in terms of like low or high self-esteem. So you can sort of imagine this, just this one pole that just goes from high to low. So you've either got low self-esteem or high self-esteem. Um, so what it encourages is this sort of global evaluation of, of everything about a person. Um, and I think, well, I certainly struggle with that as not, not being a particularly useful um, concept because it encourages people just to see themselves in this quite narrow way. Like I'm either a good person or a bad person. I'm, I'm good enough or I'm not good enough. Um, and I think certainly... Well, I think both of us would would see people as being much more nuanced, dynamic, and you want to see people in a much broader way than just with this simple kind of high or low self-esteem measurement. It feels a little lazy. Mm, and it's become so popular. You're right. I hear it so much in coaching, in the workplace. People say, uh, something I want to work on in coaching is my, my low self-esteem. And... And we really have to unpick what that means for them. But I agree, it's a much more, it's a much broader thing. And I don't think it's particularly helpful. Joe? Yeah, that's, it's interesting. The thing is, the reason it's, it's people use it, because there is utility in it. It does describe something. I think we all could probably think about someone with low self-esteem, right? And what does that sort of mean? Low self-concept, inability to say no, uh, difficulty setting boundaries, or, or all that sort of set of things sort of overall 
sense of themselves is is not quite good enough. And you can sort of see that the sort of logical thing to do is exactly what Rich is saying. You know, if that's bad, then what's the what's good? Well, the good is the opposite. It's just that that's the thing that is, like Rich said, it narrows us in terms of our what we do about that that issue. So while there's there's utility in identifying that sort of sub thing, subclass of stuff that's going on, it's, it's how to deal with it requires a really much more, we would say, a much more nuanced and sophisticated uh, response. But you know, here, here's the thing, right? It's it's the thing that's been spoken to is a, a self, a sense of self, and the that uh, a colleague of ours described as like the the holy grail of psychology. Like if you can get your head around the self and you understand that. Uh, and the self and how it re- relates to other people and groups and so on and so forth, all the human activities, then you're, you're onto something. If you can, if you can make sense of that, understand it and work with it. So, you know, th- there's the thing that Rich and I have been grappling with for a long time is how to not just do raise your self-esteem and, and make people more, I don't know, the evidence suggests a little bit more narcissistic if you do that, but to do something that's, well, Rich, we would call it self-acceptance, which is another global term but i think probably more honestly reflects the the move we're looking for right yeah i think we we, we want to encourage people to be accepting of themselves not in the sense of just you know like i'm going to wave a white flag there's this bit about me i don't like and i'll just accept it it's it's more like i can accept my, myself as as a person and I can work on this particular characteristic of myself that I think I could improve. The thing about the sort of self-esteem concept and, and trying to instill in people, imagine I'm doing some inverted quotes with my fingers, you know, like high self-esteem beliefs, like, you know, I'm a fighter or I'm a, I'm a tiger. People sometimes say in the workplace, they're all very well when everything's going great. But what the research suggests is when people are struggling for whatever reason, maybe external conditions aren't going so so well, people can't access that kind of stuff. Or if they can, they don't believe it. So it's that, that kind of just relying on high self-esteem, sort of giving yourself a little pep talk, it, it doesn't work when you most need it. And, and that's that's the problem. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of, it does work, doesn't it? The measures we see boosts in self-esteem as reported like, am I a good person? Yes, 10 out of 10. But you know, when the rubber hits the road, that's the thing we're most interested in. Does this allow people to be choiceful, be the kind of person they want to be, act with authenticity, lead in the way they want? As Rich is saying, the evidence suggests emphatically, no. That's problematic, right? There was a really big study, a big systematic review in 2003, which, I mean, the headline was, we have not found evidence that boosting self-esteem causes benefits. Um, you know, it doesn't help people in terms of leadership or to become more efficacious. So just kind of kidding yourself that you're a great person, whilst at the same time, continuing to have those nagging thoughts to sort of provide evidence that, that, that maybe that's not entirely true. That doesn't really work very well. So it's, it's much more efficacious to have a more nuanced view of yourself and recognize that you're a person with good qualities, bad qualities, indifferent qualities, but, but none of that detracts from your value as an individual. Like I can accept you at the same time as um, maybe agreeing with you that there's a particular aspect of life that you're not very good at, for example. I'm, I'm loving where this is going. And I think I'm, I'm understanding the, the distinction between self-esteem and self-acceptance. But I wonder if we could just pause and just maybe reflect on some, perhaps some examples in, in the workplace. I'm thinking some things I see, are people are attached to specific job titles like deputy director or head of or 
I'm vice president of knobs and knockers, whatever it might be. And that rising up a hierarchy is is a good thing. Does that resonate mm-hmm. with you? It's a, yeah, absolutely. It's it's sort of a funny one, isn't it? And it's such a part of working life. Like hierarchies are, are just going to be there. And personally, obviously, that's not a bad thing. And that's the way we organize most of our working systems. But certainly, you see it get it gets really problematic when the person takes that, that label that's been bestowed upon them and holds on to it really tightly. So you can hear the metaphor that that we're talking about there. It's that it's the relationship the person has to that. So when it gets problematic is when people cling to it, like if I, I must have this at the expense of everything else. So it becomes incredibly hard to be flexible when one holds on to that label. So, you know, a really nice example of sort of flexibility or the agility would be when we talk about uh, leadership, like vulnerable leaders, uh, leaders who are authentic, who bring themselves into the workplace not in, a, not in a manipulative way, but to say, this is this is me and this is who I am. These are some of the things that I, I can struggle with. And that, that that authenticity can become such a hugely beneficial thing for their leadership, for connecting with their teams and being being effective. It's really hard to do that if I hold on to that title like, you know, like I'm the boss and that's all that I'm about. And boss means big, boss means top of the pile, boss means strong, tough and without weakness. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, wh- where's your agility there? It's just gone. You're, you're all mm. about doing everything you can to protect and hold on to that thing. And you might not do the thing you need to do. And I guess it speaks to a leader who thinks, well, my job is I need to make all the decisions. I'm responsible for all of this. I can't seek support or I can't appear to be weak Yeah, for sure. in, in making decisions. And it can lead to just an almost blindness when making decisions, not considering all the possibilities or just exhaustion. Mm. I also don't think people respect that very much. So it doesn't ring very true, does it? Like if, if someone has just got such a narrow sense of who they are and they, and they only allow you to sample their behavior when it's consistent with the role. You can see me when I'm being the boss, when I'm being strong. Um, you don't get to see anything else. I don't, well, I don't buy that. Do you, do you know what I mean? I, I think everybody is much more complex and nuanced and dynamic than that. So if I have a boss that only shows me this one side of them I, I struggle to really sort of respect that i don't think that i don't think they're modeling being sort of true so you know, if i think about but my boss is in in my life I, I respect the ones who are who model sort of how i feel you know like I, I feel like a nuanced individual like i i'm good at some things i'm not very good at other things i'm confident in some situations and not others that's how I feel as a person. And when I see someone modeling to me that actually that's all right. Yeah. They can they can recognize their own good qualities or recognize their own need for self-improvement. If they can model that to me, I I respect them a lot more. Mm. Yeah, that's such a nice point. Because I I think what's important is I keep using this word agility and uh, Susan David wrote this really cool book on emotional agility and I just there's a nice term, right? Agility, flexibility, suppleness, all those terms that are where leaders can can be flexible in that space. And a nice example where, because it's not like one size of its foot's all, right? It's not like vulnerability all the time. Someone told me this story about a, a leader who was with a junior staff team, did what she needed to do, which was be, what they needed was a leader who was just like, I've got this. You know, you don't need to worry about this stuff. And sort of just kind of uh, held them in a way and held the team and held their concerns. And then she saw this leader move then from this meeting straight into another meeting with a senior leadership team and just changed and flipped the switch and just was 
really, uh, what would you say, just open and authentic and just said just how stressed she was and how she wasn't coping and, and that she needed support from the team. Uh, and this person observing this just made this really nice observation about it. it was it was done in a really a genuine way. It wasn't like a manipulative way, but it was what was needed for both situations. And I just thought, wow, isn't that cool? Like the, the sort of the, the suppleness to be able to move into those different environments and contexts in a way that works for what's needed. And, you know, I, like you're saying, Rich, there, I think when a leader is holding on too tightly to a, a notion of themselves, then I don't know, you, you just can't. You can't sort of respond to what's actually needed and being asked of you, can you? Because it's, it's, work is so complex as it is. There's different environments ask so many different things of us. Mm. Mm, I, I, I love that example, Joe, because it speaks to the, the complexity of the leadership role and the, mm. the number of resets they need to do every day. I'm really curious about how leaders do that resetting or recharging their batteries if they're going from that sort of the function of what they need to do with that junior team is to give them reassurance. Then they can choose to be more open with those who are more close or mm. familiar and, and express that vulnerability. But that vulnerability expressed with the junior team would probably be quite alarming for them. Mm, precisely, yeah. yeah. I remember one of my all-time leadership heroes was in the civil service, and it was a, a director general there. And she could do this. I'm just trying to work out if I can say her name. I don't see why not. Philippa Lloyd. And she was a director general, and she could switch from briefing a minister to then hot desking around the area she covered. And she'd just land and hot desk with a group of a, a mixed team. And you could see them all go, holy shit. <laughs> it's Philippa Lloyd just come to sit with us. I better just keep my head down. And... Right. And then she'd start to role model. I think speaks to what you were talking about, Rich. She started to role model that humanity. She'd be saying, did anyone see Strictly at the weekend? And people would be going, um, is this a trick question? Um, yes, yes, I did. And the next thing you'd hear her guffawing and just you could see people warming around her. And that's exactly the function she needed and why she did that. She didn't always find that easy to do that, but it was part of her connecting with her people. And I just found that so powerful and really something that's always stuck with me. To give you one example, so my, my current boss, we were having some sort of difficult things going on at work um, and it was things were just stressful and you could see her getting overwhelmed right and, and but i think in you if you're in a leadership position and you notice yourself getting overwhelmed you've well you've sort of got two choices haven't you you can you can try and style it out and pretend that you're not feeling how you're feeling or you can be honest about how you're feeling and she she said which is a really simple thing but it's always really stayed with me she she said in her office and she said she said rich do you, do you mind if we cut this meeting short she said I, i'm i can with everything that's going on i, f I f feel really overwhelmed i would just like to take a few minutes to to do a quick mindfulness exercise and get my head straight and like that was just so powerful to me because it it, it sort of modeled to me that like actually it's all right right it's all right just to to feel overwhelmed firstly secondly it's it's a good skill to notice that you're feeling overwhelmed and then do something about it rather than just careering around being overwhelmed you know and it and so i think that's just a, a very small example and sort of feels too small me saying it out loud but there's something in there about a, a willingness to recognize that you're to acknowledge both your sort of strengths and your frailties that i think is a strength if, I, if that's not a sort of mixed message 
Oh, absolutely. I think it's that acknowledgement that I am a leader and I have many, many facets. Yeah. And that's okay. Because that speaks to the human experience, right? That that when we think about uh, healthy selfing, which is that, of course, you know, in my day-to-day job as a leader, if if that's my what my role requires, I'm going to be very different than what I'm going to be like in my PJs and Sunday morning with the kids climbing all over me, or when I go out for a run by myself, or uh, after you know that extra glass of wine on a Friday night that I probably didn't really need, but here, there we go. So you know, I move. I'm, I my my sort of who I am kind of changes depending on the context. If I'm trying to kind of rigidly control that and be this sort of so- something I think I ought to be. Uh, often in a way to try and keep down that, that what's underneath that shouldn't be seen, then that's just lends that that rigidity that really becomes super unhelpful. So you know, being able to kind of move between those environments as contexts skillfully is important. I think. I think if you if you define yourself too narrowly as well, like I said it earlier, it's it's okay when it's when things are going well, but when they don't go so well, if you've got this narrow definition of yourself, what happens is. You hear people say things like, well, I failed. I failed at a task. So I failed at that. And therefore, I am a failure. You know, I, I think that is the language of self-esteem. And it's really like the second part isn't necessary, right? That you, you just, you failed. Doesn't doesn't prove anything about you as a person. It's just, you, you, you failed at something. You know, next time you can work on whatever it is you failed at and you can do it better. But when people say, you know, oh, I don't know, I, I, my relationship ended, therefore I, I must be unlovable. It, it's that kind of narrow definition. And, and it's, it's rarely, I, I can't think of a, a situation in which that's helpful to, to define yourself on the basis of things that happen. And people are much more than the sum of their behaviors and experiences. So, I, yeah, I just, I can't f- think of a way that that's helpful. It's, it's helpful to be able to rate aspects of yourself, like... Joe and I, we always seek feedback on our training. We, we, we want to know whether we're good trainers or not. We want people to tell us so that we can work on it. But it wouldn't be helpful if we, I don't know, we got a two out of 10 on someone's evaluation form and we just said, oh, what, that's it. We, we're useless trainers. Therefore, we're useless people and we should give all this training game up and go live under a park bench. You know, that, that, that just wouldn't be helpful. Mm. And I think this has enormous implications and applications for the workplace do you does this resonate that sometimes i i see people who who don't volunteer for a new innovative project to say oh that's not for me i'm just dot 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 mm. or people who've perhaps gone for a promotion once and had a dreadful experience and really fluffed the interview and gone right that's decision made i am not that and i think it can really set the tone for, in the extreme, a whole career. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Rich and I were talking about this before and sort of reflecting on our NHS experiences and, and also working. Like, obviously, people who have worked in the NHS over the past two years have had a horrendous time and the, the pressures have been unprecedented. And to be able to navigate that environment successfully, which I, I think is to come out relatively psychologically intact at the end of it, means means a lot of skillfulness and flexibility and where i've seen that come in where people have got into trouble is where they've it's a particular thing of course with an nhs environment which is is largely about providing care to other people who need it providing help and one of the curiosities about the nhs is that sometimes it's not always particularly good at developing mechanisms to bestow that care back on the the providers 
And particularly if you have that that environment uh, where that perhaps isn't always attended to so well, and you have people who come along with stories about themselves as as providers, as givers, it can easily can e- easily end up into that place where they get all of the energy taken out of them and quickly sort of cycle down into burnout. Uh, and people just get completely fatigued by that experience because that's who they are. I'm a doctor you know, I'm a, I, I, and I, I help people. I cure people. I help people get better. I'm a psychologist. I, I help people get their lives back on track. I'm a nurse. Uh, I help people with their physical health care. And when that context and organizational environment keeps pulling and pulling and pulling on that in the context of a global pandemic, of course, then people get that pulled further than they, than they should be. So I, I just kind of just want to just follow that up by saying that this doesn't mean to say that the individual, of course, it's their responsibility to to change or that's therefore their fault in any way. But what it really points to is that that's a human experience, but the points the need for the organizations to be very attentive of that because people, of course, do come into the workplace with these beliefs about themselves that are going to be more sometimes more rigid than they might want to be. So workplaces need to look after people, need to help help those mechanisms to have them in place to make it easy for them to get help, to make help seeking normalized, uh, not even normalized, but, but very much valued as an integral part of providing care is, is receiving that care as well. And if you're a leader, you know, one of the most effective ways to encourage people to do that is to show them how to do it, is to model it. Yeah. You know, absolutely. How, yeah. do you, how do you get your staff to look after themselves? Well, you model self care. I don't think you do that by saying, right, I'm the boss, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, working every hour God sends and, and uh, you know, not looking after yourself. That That's not how you model. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, what are you going to do when your boss kind of works until 7, 730 uh, every night and starts emailing you in the weekend, right? Uh, personally, I, I watch that behavior very carefully because that sets a precedent. Mm. Those are the expectations then for the work environment. Mm. Uh, when a leader looks after themselves and says, you know what? Fridays, we're going to take a slow day. We're going to finish at three o'clock today. I'm going to not be responding to emails over the weekend. You're not going to hear from me. That sense sets a very different tone. Mm. It takes me back to my same leadership hero, Philippa, mm. who had a non-work day on a Thursday. Mm-hmm. And there were routes you could get to her if there was an emergency. Mm. But everybody knew she wouldn't be reading emails. She wouldn't be responding to emails. And that helped them set their own boundaries in their, their time outside of work. Mm. Because you know, the you probably come across the type of colleague or leader who, you know, they're on leave, but suddenly they'll just respond to an email. Mm. Oh, I just had five minutes. So I was responding to that email or you send them an email knowing they'll reply. Mm. That's the sort of role modeling that gets really toxic. And I often say to leaders, you, you're under scrutiny in a good way. Mm-hmm. You're under scrutiny. This is an opportunity for you. You're on the organizational catwalk and people are looking for behavioral cues on how to respond to challenges and people and events. So it's a great way for you to realize and embrace that role modeling to show how you really want this place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really nice metaphor. What you're describing there from from Philippa is is that I guess she she is recognizing her that's what she needs right that's she she needed that time away from from the office because she's not just the boss you know she's a human being mm. and she she needs looking after what yeah what a powerful message and, and interesting isn't it that of all the people you've met i'm sure in your in your capacity all, all the leaders you've met she's the one that really stands out for you 
yeah, just just so such an inspiration for me, and mm. it just takes me always takes me back to the role modeling. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's uh, a really important point in terms of how we learn. Uh, we we look to those around us, and so it's a, a very convenient way to learn to watch others. And it's like that catwalk metaphor is fantastic because. It's, it does point to that hierarchy that, of course, you know, when we, we're learning, we typically want to look at those who are further along, who are more experienced, who are not better, but above us in our, in our way. And that's our model. This is where I want to get to. So I'll be watching very closely those cues, those behavioral cues that people are emitting mm. as to, to what I want to do next or what this organization is about. I'd also add to everyone in the organization that you're all on that catwalk to some extent. It's just those leaders are, are more visible and probably have more influence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. So it's, you know, when I think about this, coming back to that self-esteem idea is then that what we are very interested in is, well, how does one get to that sort of level of, of agility and the ability to do that stuff? Because it's, it's often easy to say that to a leader, to say, this is what you need to do. And then straight away, the really next thing to do is observe what comes up what shows up for them. And typically it'll be whatever promotes rigidity. I can't do that because, great, and listen to that bit. And it'll usually be something like, I can't do that because if they see me looking like this, they will think I'm weak or they won't do what I need to do or I won't get the results, uh, the targets, won't meet the targets we need to meet or whatever it is, that that piece of fear into the future that come, that shows up there. And that's the bit that needs to, to be worked on. Uh, and where that that flexibility needs to be applied, and we would say that rather than uh, self esteem boost it, you know, just you're you're strong, you're good, you're fantastic, best blah blah leader ever. That it's about uh, a different response, which is to say that that's okay to have a, a story about ourselves that promotes rigidity. Or, or but the thing we're really interested in is our relationship to it. How to respond to it? Like do we do we cling to it, or can we? with uh, our hands open, just hold it in front of us. Just acknowledge that's a part of us. It has this history, but it doesn't have to be the, the guiding principle for how we are at work. Mm, I love that, that just tuning into those stories and recognizing them, how they were perhaps once useful, mm. functional, and they've, they've transitioned and become less useful. Let's just explore that and examine it, as, mm. look at its efficacy. Mm -hmm. I think, again, there's another role for modeling, isn't it? As a leader, you've got the opportunity, as you suggested, to to model how do I respond to my own thoughts and, and, and the demands that, that present themselves in, in my head? Um, you know, I, I can either respond in this very rigid behavioral way or I can respond in quite a flexible way. Um, again, you have the opportunity to, to, to demonstrate something to your workforce about how to, how, like how to deal with the human condition, essentially. Yeah. And like I, I, the, the things I really like is when when I see people give a sort of an example of that, like it, like when they are making a decision and they sort of give a little window into the into what's actually happening, which is to say, like, uh, it's not always appropriate, but those times where it is to say, well, gosh, my, my mind is saying this. So it's re really getting me entangled up to say that. I've got to work harder and I can't leave work early. And nonetheless, you know, I pause for a second. I think about what's important. I want to do this. Uh, those, those little sort of windows and insights can be enormously beneficial. So it's not about just the, the external behavior that's seen, but sometimes just a little kind of insight into that internal behavioral world is really crucial. Uh, but, you know, that's um, uh, it's not always easy to do. It's going to be a little exposing. It's really super important, I think, in terms of 
modeling and leading? I think flexibility is the key, isn't it? It reminds me a little of the work I've done in sport. You know, like the th- you, the rigid things you hear some people say, some sports people say, like, this is a must-win game. And that's great if you win it. But if, if you're 3-0 down at half-time in, in this must-win game, you, you've got a problem, right? That, that If you had a much more flexible attitude to that, it, that's probably going to facilitate your performance rather than demanding that you you know you have to win. And, and I guess that, you know, there are lots of sort of corollaries of that in, in, in the workplace, people making all sorts of rigid demands of themselves and others. Great if the context supports that, but often it's not going to. And, and what happens on the day when the context doesn't allow you to achieve all of your demands? Um, how are you going to look in front of your, your staff then? It's so, so interesting to hear about this from you guys. Because I think I see some rigid stories amongst men in the workplace sometimes about, hey, just crack on, man up. Mm. Have some balls, for God's sake. And Lunches for wimps. Yeah. God, that's just dreadful, that one. But yeah, it's it's this toxic stuff that just becomes not really questioned. Or if I am sending emails at midnight, hey, and you reply, hey, check us out. Mm. Aren't we fucking amazing? Mm-hmm. Someone said a term to me that I'd never heard the other day, but busy bragging. It was, you know, it's like, how's things with you? Well, I'm really busy. Oh, I'm so busy. Yeah. And, and then, well, yeah, I'm really busy too. And it's this competition who can be the busiest. Yeah, it's not, it's not helpful, is it? Where's that going to lead us? I'm pretty sure our, you know, our foraging hunter-gatherer ancestors didn't do that. I think they, they forage as much as they needed to do, and then they kick back the rest of the time. So guys, in our in our prep for this conversation, we talked about a takeaway and it's kind of an extended takeaway. You're you're very generous chaps. And I wonder if you'd take us round your some elements of your your daisy models for practical things that we can do. Yes, we take one each. So I guess the first thing is to is to we, we called it making room in terms of a practical thing that we can all do is just sort of recognizing that in the, in the pursuit of anything meaningful, there is going to be discomfort. You know, if you, if you want to be a high achiever, you want to be a leader, there will be some pain and discomfort along the way. I think it's become a cliche. I, I, I can't get through any kind of training or interview without saying it at least once. So here goes, you ready? You know, in, in your pain, you find your values and in your values, you find your pain. You know, the, the things that are really meaningful will, will be a source of distress for you. And there's no way of separating that out. You know, try try having a long standing intimate relationship without any you know, any jealousy at all or any anxiety. You try bringing up kids without any stress or irritation. Try having a, a worthwhile, meaningful career without any uh, effort or sacrifice. I think, firstly, just just recognize that as you strive for something that's important, there's, there's going to be discomfort and, and you're better off if you make room for that and allow that to be there rather than, than rail against it the whole time. The second part of the, the the model we think about is tuning into the story that comes along with us that contributes to that rigidity. Uh, and oftentimes, one of the things we always, always find is there's so much automaticity with these processes. They just happen so quickly, so fast. We just don't even recognize that they're there. We just find ourselves... Uh, working hard, we find ourselves being that kind of rigid leader we never never wanted to be, uh, having excessive high standards, perfectionism, 
We don't kind of catch why this is happening, and especially those stories underneath about ourselves that drive a lot of this. We just respond to it like our hands go around the story and cling to it, and we don't even really notice our hands there. So this ability then just to pause and slow down and tune into this story and start to see it and notice it for what it is. And not always the case, but it could be sort of the things that are like, uh, I'm not good enough, or uh, I, I'm a failure, or some of the th- things that might sort of lurk deep under there that, that we end up driving our behavior in, in those unproductive ways, and especially our relationship to it. And and we find this autom- automatic responses then are, are largely about avoiding contacting that or avoiding some of the consequences. So I work really, really hard. So I, I never get to have this thing about myself that I'm not good enough seen by other people, and, and I avoid avoid situations that might kind of take me into that arena. So from making room, then we want about to tune into that story, start getting eyes on it and start recognizing it before we move on to part three of this model. So we, we talked about this in terms of just creating some distance. So once you, once you recognize that your mind is telling you a bit of a story about who you are or who you should be, it's just to create some distance between you and it because you are not it i know that sounds like a bit of a philosophical thing to say but i mean mine if i could i'll give you an example i'm like my story that is that crops up time and time again is this i'm a fraud thing you know every time I, literally every time i stand up in front of a group of trainees or, or or an organization that i'm working with i get this relentless kind of as i said in the song you know got to do more got to be more this isn't going to be good enough and and who the hell am i to stand here uh, in front of these people what gives me the right why should they want to listen to me you know all of that and so i genuinely don't have a choice about that i can't it's not like a switch i can't flick it and turn that off that that just keeps coming so what i try and do is to create some distance sort of rec- recognize that here i am having having these thoughts and try and see them as being the product of what I care about, which is being helpful to these people. So if you can sort of create a little distance between you and and it, and sort of almost see it as like, here I am, there it is, I can't choose it, but I can choose my response to it. And, and, and what is that going to be? It's so nice to be able to be able to do that and offer that up to people. And I find that such a powerful message, that ability to choose. The next stage, then, we want we want to extend that further, and, and as we create this movement here, this flexibility, and we think about being able to help people flexibly uh, move their attention and their perspective around. So, you know, Rich, you talked before about that that rigidity that happens when we get really caught up with who we are. We, we want to be able to move that around. There's a couple of really key places I like to do that. Uh, one would be to be asking people to view themselves differently from a different spatial perspective. Like if you can imagine yourself right now uh, getting caught up in this story and you're sitting across the room and you're looking back at yourself with some wise and kind eyes, what would be the things that you might notice about this relationship you you have with yourself at this point? And in that question, I might add like, and how would you want that to be different? If you were able to be true to yourself, be the kind of person that you'd want to be, how would you like to uh, be with this important aspect of yourself and this relationship that's evolved in this way. And another uh, really nice perspective taking shift is to move people forward in time. When we get really caught up, it's very uh, easy just to get stuck in one particular place. Uh, but say asking someone to move forward in time, like, you know, towards the, the end of their career. And I like the kind of thing I like to say is like, imagine you end of the career 
and you've done it all, you've seen it all, you've, you've been to all the places you want to be, and you're, you've got your nearest and dearest around, and you're sitting back on that tropical island, cocktail in hand, and you're just reminiscing uh, for a moment. Uh, and you're going to reminisce about this particular point where you're up against it, uh, you're in the, on the face of adversity, and you're fighting hard, and you're talking to your nearest and dearest, and you're saying, there's one thing that I was really proud of that I did in that moment that I stood for. And what will that thing be that you'd, you'd want about to speak to? And I invariably find that those moves, those perspective-taking shifts just really uh, add up a lot of creativity and some, some ideas and some wisdom and some compassion and kindness that's just often not available to us when we're really, really caught up. So moving around like that just helps get things moving, some freedom, some suppleness into the system that can be really, really beneficial. And the, the last thing is, is really to recognize that, that you are bigger than any thought that you might have about yourself. Uh, rather than talk about this, Ross, would you be up for just very brief, you know, do this experientially rather than just talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. So, what, so what's a story that your head tells you that, that feels unhelpful? Um, I'm out of my depth okay. in in some in some projects I've taken on. Okay, so you notice yourself having the thought that you're out of your depth. Mm. Um, can you see like what I've just said there? There, like there, you are noticing that you're having the thought that you're out of your depth. Like you're the bigger thing here. There, there's you. And then there's that thought that you're noticing. And like, would it be all right if I said that 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 thought is just part of you? It's just part of your experience. It, it would. Um, and do you think you're bigger than it, or it's bigger than you? The the way you ask the question, I think I'm bigger than it. Okay. And that's 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 what I would want for you. For you to be able to kind of, if I could put it this way, for you to own that thought rather than that thought owning you. It's really, I don't know whether the mic picked it up, but I, there was a moment there when I just had a exhalation of like, oh, that's a relief. Right. I kind of felt a bit of a release that, oh, crikey, I think that that thought, that, that depth thing, it really felt like I couldn't touch the bottom mm -hmm. in the swimming pool and I was beginning to panic. And I feel that panic sometimes. And when you said that, I thought, oh, actually, yeah, you can, it's just there, it's just there. And it felt like a relief or a kind of weight lifted. Yeah, and so like we said earlier, you, know, you, you, you probably can't choose that thought that as long as you care about doing these projects, there's probably gonna be a bit of you that's yes, mindful about whether you've taken on too much and mm -hmm. whether you can do this. Uh, and that's all very normal. There's nothing to there's nothing to run from there. You know, I think that's all that's perfectly normal. But we don't we don't want it to be pushing you around. We want you to, you you to be the one that's in the driving seat. Thanks, Rich, because I think sometimes that that does push me around. You, you're absolutely right. It, it feels consuming is the word yeah. that comes to mind. So if you could see that as just one of the thoughts that you have in in the in the context of you know wanting to be good at what you do and wanting to wanting to have do fulfilling mm. work. You know, like I said earlier, you can't you can't choose having that thought, but you, you can choose how you're going to respond when you have it. Lovely. Thank you. So that gives us a bit of a sense of some of the key parts of that model. We kind of tend to move around it. And I think we've hammered this home a fair bit. But this this what we're looking for here is not to get rid of this self story, this part of ourselves that's maybe problematic, like delete it or remove it or change it into something else. 
uh, we're saying that these self stories are a natural product of uh, of a human story growing up and the limitations that all of us experience to one degree or another and the, the the end result of that that we might end up having doubts about ourselves who we are and our place in the world we want to then respond to that part of ourselves with some agility some flexibility so not with rigidity so the key thing we're focusing on weirdly is not the self story itself like that's not the problem as it were, the, the solution here is not trying to get rid of that solution. In fact, is how we respond to that, our relationship with it. And if we can interject, just like you did there, Rich, with Ross, that sort of sense of some warmth, kindness, compassion, even understanding, then we've got some space to move. Like not on a kind of let ourselves off the hook, self-acceptance, hey, it's cool, whatever I am, whatever I do. But there's more breathing space, there's more room to move and to, to say, now what do I want to do? If I was able to choose now, what can I be about? What kind of person do I want to stand for? I just think that's so freeing. It's so um, choiceful. It's a, it's a nice place to be in. Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for that generosity and that outstanding takeaway. And that takeaway comes from your book. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 There's, a, there's a few years of hard work there into, into that book and all the kind of lead up to it. And the, that those are ideas coalesced there into, into that. What we've called the daisy model because we once presented it with a slide with a, a daisy in the in the middle of it it's kind of like it's a nice graphic but there's different kind of parts that, that we invite people to move around as they get eyes on the stuff and work with it more effectively so i'll, I'll make sure there's a, there's a link to the mindfulness and acceptance workbook for self-esteem in the show notes for this episode if people want to find out more and have a read themselves Great. It was our first stab at writing a self-help book. We'd, we'd pretty much just written for professional audiences prior to that. So this is really a book for anybody who, you know, finds themselves caught up with um, with those thoughts of not being good enough or being a fraud or being an imposter and any of that kind of stuff. And there's a bit, there's quite a lot of our personal experience as well as our professional experience poured into it, I think, from our, our own struggles with that stuff. Mm. Yeah, just a, a book really is about trying to help people forge a different relationship with that stuff. Wonderful. And what was it like, the process? How, what kept you going through that process of writing this book together? We, we'd written a, a book before, so we knew had a little bit of insight into our writing process. We, we talked lots about this. Uh, we've trained lots about it. I don't know how you, what you thought, Rich, but I tell you, one of the things I found probably the most interesting and challenging was taking some of these, what I think are sometimes quite complex ideas, like, you know, this rarefied concept of the self, but actually dropping it down and making it practical and stripping out all the language and the jargon and presenting it in a term that someone without that prior existing knowledge could come to and understand easily in an accessible way and, and be useful in their lives. So to be honest, I actually learned personally tons from this writing process about what actually our ideas were uh, and also learned tons about how to effectively communicate that to other people. Mm. Yeah. And I actually had a lot of fun writing this book. It was, uh, it was a lot of creativity that was built into it. We reached out to a lot of colleagues in doing this process, thought lots, and it felt like a really fun collaborative process that evolved over time so it was neat to do it in that way i really enjoyed it for that for those reasons 
I really enjoyed the the back and forth between us. I think that that was a nice thing. It wouldn't have been the same experience had 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 I written that on my own. I don't think so. It was it was really nice to. It was a bit like marking, if I'm honest. So so like Joe would send me a chapter and then I'd go through it with a red pen and send it back, and then he would do the same. And and so we had this sort of mutual marking exercise going on between us. But somebody said a really nice thing about it actually. That my partner's sister is involved in writing and supporting writers and authors she said you you can't tell the difference between the chapters she said i couldn't tell which chapter you'd written or which chapter joe had written and i thought that was a really nice outcome that we we ended up trying you know speaking with one voice so i think i think our our back and forth mm-hmm. must have must have been quite useful in in sort of unifying the way we the way we wrote yeah yeah wow guys i want to thank you both for your generosity and your time and your openness for coming on the show I want to thank you for for being there out there in the world and spreading the message to alleviate suffering in the world. I'm just so grateful that you're writing books and you're doing training. And it's been a real privilege for me to witness the creativity and the connection between you two in this conversation. So thank you very, very much. Thanks so much for having us, Ross. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Ross. Thanks for inviting us. It's a real privilege to to be involved in your uh, in your podcast. So thank you very much. That's it, part two in the bag. Thanks so much to Joe and Rich for being so open and co-creating such a fun space for our conversation. You can grab a copy of the fabulous book via the link in the show notes. If you like this episode of the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioural science and skills with more people. Of course, a subscription, follow, rating or review are also very much appreciated. Reviews are marvellous and I could do with a whole lot more to help us reach more people. Could you help me out? I'd be really, really grateful. The show notes are at rossmackintosh.co.uk and this includes links to a few different platforms. I love to hear from you and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we're at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. On Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and Alex Engelberg for his vocals. Most of all, dear listener, thanks to you. Look after yourselves, pea supers, and bye for now. I mean, how could you not just kind of like get fully behind that? Isn't that just the most enthusiastic, empowering kind of chord progression you're going to hear? Just that solid beat thumping away that, that is that is ring ring walk music isn't it I, I can see you doing that with your with your dressing gown on and uh, <laughs> throwing torches around <laughs> I, I didn't want to have to say it but yeah you're right absolutely mm. it definitely that's like uh, charging down yeah. oh, you've made my day with your dressing gown on <laughs> but it will be a nice silk dressing gown it won't be a uh... Oh yes, it'll flow. It'll flow. A ropey old frayed one no, no, no. with terry toweling like mine. <laughs> no, it'll be quality. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>